Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Romans chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I have a question for you. You don't have to answer out loud, but if, if I can't be trusted to hand out the Bible to the people I've called up so that I could hand out Bibles to them, how can I be trusted to teach on judgment? <laughs> I'm sorry. That was, that was too much, apparently. So uh, we will pray that I will have better uh, concentration, et cetera, during this time. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, if you would. And we will be reading uh, one more paragraph. We're moving on uh, through chapter 2 here. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Actually, let me start at verse 11 and go through 16. For God shows no partiality. For all have, who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and quiet our hearts before you. The week has been busy. The upcoming week will be busy. And we have things that would compete in our minds for our attention even at this moment. I pray that you would help us set those things aside. We have your word open before us. We have your spirit living within us. And we get to join together as a congregation and study your word together. So I pray that you would help us in that. Father, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts this morning, that we would be sensitive to your spirit, that we would be responsive to your spirit. I pray that the word of God would be clear to us on a difficult passage, a difficult topic. May your word speak to us clearly, and may we be convicted, may we be encouraged, and may we be changed. So we ask for your blessing. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are, as I said, moving our way through the book of Romans, and we are still in the difficult passages before we get to the great news of the gospel that's coming in, in chapter 3, verses 21 and following. But uh, we need to understand various aspects, various things that are true of us and true of our future as humans. And so we come to this passage today that is a sort of an exposition of God's impartiality, that God actually is fair. If you have children, you know that the topic of what is fair 
comes up shortly after they learn how to talk. And uh, what is fair in uh, something being given to one sibling or the other or a discipline handed out one way or the other, that topic of fairness, of course, is close to our hearts. And it's revealed in, in the conversation of children. And I don't think it actually lessens as the children grow older. Uh, the stakes just get higher. But what is fairness and how, how is it that parents can be fair when they discipline one child one way and another child a different way or uh, fairness? And we've just read the statement in chapter 2 that God shows no partiality. How is it that God can be impartial? How is it that God can be fair? And yet there exist people in this world who have not heard the gospel. In fact, if you think about the history of the Old Testament, the, the story began with God calling Abram. One man and he and his wife were to become a nation. They were to do so through having children, and that was a slow process with them, and they didn't really multiply. And, and even as the generations continued and God was developing this, uh, the people of God, the children of Abraham, they didn't multiply super quickly. And even by the time you get to the Exodus, and there are millions of them living in Egypt and uh, about to head out of Egypt, yet if you think about those millions compared to all the millions of the earth, it's a very small portion who had God's message, a very small portion who had God's word directly to them. And even through the growth of the Old Testament, they become a nation. You have things being written down, the prophets and, and things like that. How many people during the time of Daniel had never heard of Yahweh? And so you ask the question, how can those people be judged? How can those people who have not heard be judged and God still be fair? How can God still be impartial? And that's part of what our passage today is talking about, is uh, how can God render judgment to those who have His Word and render judgment to those who don't have His Word and not be unfair? So that's our passage today, and we move, we move into verse 12 He's explaining how it is that God shows no partiality. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So first, I want to look at those who are judged without law. The first thing we should notice about these people is that they have sinned also. That's the baseline. Those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Sin is man's nature, after all, our fallen nature. He's proven that already in chapter 1, and he's really, really going to prove it in chapter 3. But dealing with those who have never heard, those who are without the law, they still have sin. They still have disobedience to God, and the judgment that will be rendered to them will be rendered without law. I don't know if you've ever played a game before where you didn't know the rules. I'm sure you've tried to play those games. I remember the first time I was asked to pray at my neighbor's house when I was probably 14, 13. I had no idea how to pray, literally. What words do you put in what order? I had no clue. I didn't know the rules. Well, sometimes it's just because you're ignorant of the rules, but I played a particular game one time with my sister-in-law 
And it's a game that has no rules or that the person playing it cannot be told the rules. And if I remember correctly, the, it's fair for the person who makes up the rules to change them as they go. I'm not sure. So Candace, my sister-in-law, wanted to play this game with me. And I didn't know the rules, and she was smirking at me. And that's no fun. Like you, you need to know some rules in order to play the game, right? Well, there's a way to win that game, and I will have you know that I won that game <laughs> without knowing the rules. <laughs> but it's not fair if you don't know the rules, right? You have to know what the standards are. And so how can God be impartial if people don't know the rules? Well, our passage here says that all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. They don't have the written law, and so the judgment upon them will be based upon the unwritten law. That's the unwritten law of natural law. We talked about in in chapter 1 that God has revealed Himself to all of mankind. Everyone who has access to creation knows some things about God. And we talked about His invisible attributes being made visible in creation and the things that have been made. And, and they know that. People know that. And, and yet, what do they do with that information? We talked about suppressing the truth. So they have a basic store of information. They have a basic amount of information. And yet, what does the unbeliever do? He suppresses it. He holds it down. He's going to develop that later on in our paragraph. But for now, what I want us to catch is that these people who have never heard of the Torah, the Jewish law, will not be judged by that written law. They're judged based upon the law they do know, not the law that they're ignorant of. They're judged based upon the law that is within them, not the one that's written they didn't know about. So, some will be judged without the law, and some will be judged by the law. He continues in in verse 12, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So again, we're talking about sinners. We're talking about those who have broken the law, broken God's law in this case. They do have God's written expectation, and yet what do they do with it? They still break it. They still break it, and so the judgment upon them will be much more specific be much more detailed than, than just the general knowledge of certain things of God that is then uh, that truth being then suppressed. But judgment will be by the law. Just as possessing God's law gives us great benefit, gives us great opportunity to obey God, yet at the same time when we disobey God, there's a greater standard of judgment. And so he starts off just laying the groundwork that all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So there will be judgment, and it will be fair judgment, and it will be fair according to their own circumstances. So thus, we have the judgment for unbelievers. And that judgment, point number two, is based upon the standard of obedience the standard of obedience. Listen to what he says in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Merely hearing, merely having access to the law, the standard, God's expectation, does not result in justification. This is like the the idea that college students develop and really, really wish it was true that you could learn by osmosis. You know, if you... 
you take that impossible subject and you sleep on the textbook, you'll be good to go. We all wish that would work, and maybe some of us even tried it. It doesn't work, right? It's not the hearer of the law who will be justified before God, but it's the doer of the law. God's standard, this is what he's saying here, God's standard is obedience to what he says, not just the privilege of having her detailed exposition of what God says. And so it's important for us to understand that it's not the hearer who is justified, but it is the doer who will be righteous before God. Now, it's important for us to remember, and in today's message, there are going to be several fine distinctions that I need you to catch. So, so um, think, think closely on this. When he gives that standard, he did not tell us who it is who can do that. What he's saying is my standard of judgment based upon the law is doing my law, obedience to my law, not just hearing it, not just the benefit of, of being born to a particular nation or, or uh, being a member of the right church. It's the doer of the law. It's obedience to what God says to do that is his standard. And so there's application for us in light of the fair judgment of God. He judge, judges us based upon obedience to His Word, and you're sitting here, and I'm sitting here, and we're hearing God's Word today. So think about how often you've heard God's Word in your life. Think about how clearly you understand what God expects. And sometimes we may think that hearing it and understanding it is, uh, is the end, but it's not. God really does teach us in His Word what to believe about Him, and we should believe that. And He teaches us in His Word what we should do in response, and we should do those things. And so, we need not to be hearers of the Word only, but doers, because even now, there's a greater degree of accountability because we understand more. This is what James is talking about in chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. He says, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks intently or looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." We wake up in the morning and we look in the mirror and we frighten ourselves and we think, I better fix this before anyone else has to see me, right? And then we fix that before anyone else has to see us. We don't look at that and frighten ourselves and think, I need to fix this and then just go out into the world. That's not normal. And yet, with the, with the Word of God, sometimes we do that. Sometimes we look and we see and we frighten ourselves and we think, something's got to change, and then we pray a little prayer and close our Bibles and go about our day. Didn't brush our teeth, didn't fix our hair, didn't shave, didn't do any of that stuff. So we need not to be hearers only, but doers of the Word. And so he's, he's laying out what the standard is, and he's, he's saying that it's more, the standard is more than just belonging to the right group. It's more than just hearing good things. God judges based upon the standard of obedience and so we have obedience with this first group to a written law. 
And in a second group, he's going to move on and talk about obedience to the unwritten law. Because what about those who are not sitting in here hearing the Bible with us? What about those who, like me, literally have no idea how to pray? And they couldn't tell you Genesis from Revelation. Couldn't tell you who Jesus is. What about those people? Well, he's going to judge them based upon obedience to an unwritten law. We continue in verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We talk very often about man being sinful and and about man being totally sinful. When we say that, however, we don't mean that man is as sinful as he could be. God still restrains sin, and so we see good things done in our world. We see people who are not believers serving other people. We see philanthropists. We see people who do good in this world. They, uh, we, we see people who are unbelievers who are obedient to their parents, who tell the truth, who don't lie on their taxes. We see those people. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from that natural law that's within them. That comes from their obedience to that. And he says, sometimes and in some ways, unbelievers who don't know God's explicit requirements, yet they demonstrate that they have an idea of them by the way they behave. Because no unbeliever is as bad as he could be. God does indeed restrain evil. And anytime you have an unbeliever who does good things, they are showing forth, they really do have an inkling. They do have an idea of what God expects. And they're obeying that in that moment. And that's a good thing. But it also reveals that when they disobey, they also know what God expects, and yet they disobey. So you have this unwritten law. It's, he, he refers to it as the work of the law written on their hearts, which is what he was talking about in chapter 1, that we know basically what God expects. We know that lying is wrong. We know that, uh, that adultery is wrong. I was reading in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and he, he makes a very interesting argument for this exact point. He says, looking around the world at different cultures, you see a lot of commonality. You see differences, particularly in the specifics. You know, some cultures believe that, that marriage to one woman is, is the way it ought to be, and others think that marriage to four women is fine. But most cultures have the idea that you can't just be sleeping with every woman. You have to choose. And so you have these ideas, these revelations that indeed people do have an understanding, a basic comprehension of what God expects. And so he concludes in, uh, this is in chapter 1 of Mere Christianity, when he's talking about the, the commonality there, he says, these then are the two points that I want to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and they cannot really get rid of it. There's a, a conscience. There's an idea. This is how I should behave. And it's universal. Secondly, however, though they know that, secondly, 
they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. Those are the two truths he's arguing for in chapter 1 of that book. And these are the two truths that I want us to catch. By virtue of the fact that there is evidence within the common morality around the world, you see that people understand, even unbelievers who've never heard God's Word, understand a baseline of moral behavior. And yet, even that baseline that they understand, they break. And so you have this situation where there will be judgment based upon this unwritten law that they know to be true. We know the law of nature, and we break it. I mentioned in there the idea of conscience, and it's important for us to understand what conscience is. Conscience is not the inner voice of God in our heart. Conscience is a part of our human faculty. It's a part of, of how we process things. It's, it's our judgment of an action to be in accord with or against what we consider to be the highest standard. So we have a highest standard of what is right and wrong in our mind, and every human does. Some standard. And when, when we contemplate an act, when we contemplate something that we do or are thinking about doing, we judge it based upon does it match that standard or not. And if it doesn't match that standard, our conscience twinges. Eee, I shouldn't do that or I shouldn't have done that. When it matches up with that good, good standard, the standard of, of what is the greatest good, our conscience is clear. And so, that's the function of conscience, is it's recognizing, it's comparing what we consider to be the highest standard with our behavior. And so, thus, our conscience will either bother us or we will have a clear conscience in that regard. But there's a problem. If you've read your Bible, you know that three chapters into the whole thing, sin enters the picture. And we, we become marred by sin. And two things at least happen when we're marred by that sin as regards our conscience. One is that it has marred what we hold to be the, the highest standard. Either we don't want it to be God anymore, so we choose something else, or even if we do hold that it's God, we, we don't understand it well. We misunderstand it. It has been marred by sin. That's the first part. The second part is our conscience doesn't always faithfully respond even to what we think to be the greatest good. By that I mean it's possible for our conscience to bother us about something that God is fine with, that's perfectly okay with God. And our conscience bothers us about it because we have a sinful conscience and we have a sinful comprehension of what is the highest standard. On the other hand, it's, it's perfectly possible for, us to, for our conscience to be completely okay with something that, that grieves God because we have that twisted sinful conscience and a twisted sinful grasp of what is that ultimate standard. So, how do we respond to the conscience? Well, we, we dare not ignore it. We can't ignore our conscience. And one author put it this way. He said, he said, we cannot reject the voice of conscience with impunity. But, meaning if, if we reject that voice of conscience, if we ignore it, there will be consequences in our lives. There will be problems that show up later on in our lives. But we can modify the highest standard to which it relates by gaining 
for ourselves a greater understanding of that truth. That's what I call educating our conscience, meaning something might be against our conscience, but we need to compare it with Scripture and see if it's against the Lord's design. And if it's not, then we need to understand. We need to modify our understanding of what is the highest standard. We need to educate. We need to inform our conscience. So we don't go against it. We don't just say, well, so-and-so said it was fine if I do this thing, so I'm going to go do that thing against my conscience. We dare not do that. But we can go to God's Word and we can get a better grasp of what God's standard really is. And in that way, we inform our conscience. And so the application for us, we need to keep a clear conscience before God. A clear conscience. We dare not go against it. We dare not go against it. As Paul warns in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Meaning, he's, Paul's warning Timothy there that if you, if you go against your conscience and you repeatedly do that and you just decide you're going to do this thing, regardless of what your conscience says to you, you will get to the point where you've muted your conscience and that function of your mind or whatever that, that, that relates your actions to what you understand to be the highest good, that becomes muted and we no longer understand it. We no longer listen to it. We no longer pay attention to what it says. And how long before we begin to go against our conscience in other ways and utterly ignore what our conscience says? And so we don't ignore our conscience. We listen to our conscience. We maintain a good conscience, but we can inform our conscience by better understanding what really is God's standard. And that's part of what we do when we study God's Word. It's one of the reasons we read His Bible every day, because we want to hear what God really says. We want to know what God's standard really is. Very often we have a conception in our mind somewhere that, oh, God, this is God's standard. And it may be from years of uh, listening to sermons. It may be from years of personal Bible reading, or it may be just because you heard it somewhere once and you've latched onto that as your standard, and therefore your conscience is trying to measure up to this. We need to read our Bible and get a better understanding for our conscience. We continue on in verse 16, speaking of the judgment of Christ, the judgment by Christ. So he says, he refers to in verse 16, that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. First, judgment for unbelievers. There is a coming day when God will render judgment in fairness, in righteousness, and with finality. When he says, according to my gospel, what he's saying is the gospel communication, our understanding of the gospel must understand, must comprehend within it the judgment of God. Because if the person we're sharing with doesn't understand they deserve God's judgment, why would they ever respond in faith to this gospel message? When you tell them that Jesus wants to save them, from what? You haven't even told them the gravity of their real situation. So our communication, our understanding, our thinking about the gospel must have within it the idea that God really does have a righteous standard and we don't measure up. And so we need to make that a part of our communication of the gospel, a part of our thinking about the gospel, and a part of what we praise God for in the gospel. Because you deserve His judgment. 
And you who are in Christ, that judgment has been poured on Jesus. Instead, So first, judgment for unbelievers, and second, judgment for believers. This is where I want to be very precise. We need to think carefully about this. I talked last week about justification by faith, and we rejoiced in the fact that Jesus' works are measured by God, and they are perfect. And it is the perfection and the completion of Jesus' works that are the standard by which we are justified, that when we believe in Jesus, His righteous works, His righteous acts, His life, that's applied to us. And the sacrifice that He made, that's applied to us, and therefore we are justified before God by faith. So where is this discussion of judgment for believers? Well, it starts, might help us to think about Ephesians chapter 2. So if you would go ahead and turn there, I don't want you to miss this. Most people know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 as a, as a memory verse, but what about verse 10? What about verse 10? Ephesians 2, 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a statement of what happens in the life of a person who has truly been regenerated. He said earlier in the chapter, God made them alive. By grace you've been saved, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God made you alive. And then certain things follow about being made alive this salvation that we have is, is by grace, it's through faith. And he gets to verse 10, he said, oh, and there's another thing that's true about you who have been made alive. God has given you good works to do that you should walk in them. He prepared them beforehand, and when you were regenerated, they were given to you that you should walk in them. And that word should doesn't mean that it's optional. The word should doesn't mean that you really should do it, as in it's a really good idea to do that, or as in I know you should, but you're not going to, or any of that. It's a function of the Greek language. When it says should there, it's telling you the purpose for which those works were given. And that purpose will 100% be accomplished. For the one who has been made alive, they have been given good works to walk in. This is the way they will walk, is the point. The word should there doesn't mean that it's, that it's questionable that it might actually happen or not as in Christians should obey God. That is not what that means. It means it's the purpose, the design for which God gave these works. The person who is alive in Christ will result in these things, will result in a life that demonstrates works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, for the person who has a new heart, for the person who's truly regenerate, for the person who has truly been adopted into God's family, the person who's truly in Christ, these works will result. This life will result. We talked last week about justification being by faith, right? It's ours through faith. That's how we access it. We rejoiced last week, and we should continue to rejoice in this standing before God that is ours in Christ. It's ours. It, we've accessed it by faith. But how do we know 
that that faith is true? How do we know the faith we pro- profess is truly a faith? In other words, that justification was truly by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. The kind of faith that justifies is never alone. Paul refers later on in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. He says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The question is, how do we know the faith you profess is real and genuine faith? If justification, if right standing before God is ours completely and fully because of what Jesus did and we access it by faith, how do we know that we've truly accessed it? Do we just feel it within? Do we just say, well, I had faith and therefore I have my ticket? And so everything's good? Well, we do feel within. The Holy Spirit does speak to us. But finally and ultimately, our faith, the truth, the veracity of our faith is going to be tested, is going to be evaluated to see whether it was genuine faith. And the criteria are our works. God will look at the works of the person to see if the faith was genuine. So remember what we've accomplished. Remember where we've come in our conversation. The believer who has been made new will walk in a certain way. He will have these works of God that work out in his life. It's a one-to-one correspondence. Everyone who is truly a believer will have works that respond in obedience. They're imperfect. They're incomplete. But there will be obedience to God, there will be evidence in the life of the person that their faith was genuine because God says when He makes someone new, it shows itself in their life. So, the assessment of our works is the assessment of whether our faith was genuine. It's the assessment of whether this actually happened, whether we actually did receive a new heart or not. So, this is where we need to think very carefully. This is not saying that God will examine your works and say, no, you didn't make it. Therefore, you will not be justified. You were before, but now you're not. That will certainly not happen. It's an assessment. It's an evaluation to see the authenticity, the reality of our faith, because a real faith will always show itself in these obedient works to God. Now, I am very well aware that those works are not perfect. I'm painfully aware in my own life of how imperfect those works are, how incomplete those works are. But they are the works of God, and they are evident in every person who has true saving faith. It might be helpful for us to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. This is a, excuse me, a very famous passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, you probably know it. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be made manifest, will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Our works will be assessed. We are not judged by our works. We are judged in accordance with our works, meaning our works are examined to see that our faith was true. And every person who has true faith will reveal, will show these works. That's what the judgment of works is about. It's testing the veracity, the truth of our faith. So this flies in the face of of some concepts of conversion that are sort of like uh, the idea of the, you know, you've got your fire insurance. You prayed a prayer, therefore you're justified and you're good to go and you can live your life how you want, right? That gospel communication is not a gospel communication, and that concept, that understanding of true conversion is not a true understanding. Conversion is when we realize our need before God. We realize that what we've been doing is not cutting it. Whatever I've been trusting in doesn't work, and I need Christ because I have failed, and He's the only one who has succeeded. He's the only one who can be my Savior. And so I turn away from these things that I was trying, that I was doing in my own power, that I was seeking after, that I was worshiping. That's not working. I want Him. And when that happens, there's a work that God does in our heart where He gives us a new heart, where He makes us alive. And when that happens, our new heart will live out a life of obedience to God where we will see these works that God has put before us to do, we will see them done in our lives. That's the first aspect of this judgment that we're talking about. But the second aspect is what Paul brought up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and that's reward. There really will be reward in heaven that's different from Christian to Christian. He really will assess and see what has been built upon the foundation, what kind of life we've led as a Christian, Will there be anything left? Even for, the, for the, the true Christian, if you compare two different Christians, which he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 3, he says there will be a distinction, a differentiation in the reward based upon the works that they've done. He will survive yet as one who's passed through fire because all of his works were burned up. They were vain. And so, We need to keep in mind, Christian, that there really is a future assessment. There really is a future judgment of our works. God will really look at what we're going to do. The gospel message is not about fire insurance. It's not about a ticket to ride. And now we've got it, and hey, that's all I need. That is not the gospel message. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us that, in fact, true conversion comes from the heart and results in a changed life. So there are some points of application for us as we conclude. In light of that fair judgment of God, we must keep in mind what we are saved to, not only what we are saved from. We rejoice in what we've been saved from. We rejoice in the fact that we've been saved from hell, that we've been saved from the punishment for our sins, that we've been saved from the wrath of God. We rejoice in that. And that is not all we focus on. 
we need to keep in mind that we are also saved to something. As Paul said in chapter 2 and verse 10, these good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, or as Paul put, or excuse me, Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2, 24, we are saved to live to righteousness, to die to sin and live to righteousness. We are saved to walk with God, to know Him, to exhibit in our lives a lively faith in Christ. So our gospel message is not one that says, here's your fire insurance, you're good to go. It would be better if you did good stuff, but that's not the gospel message. The true conversion, true response to the gospel message is a conversion from the heart. We asked in the beginning, how it can be fair for God to condemn those who've never heard the gospel? Paul makes it clear, though, that that, uh, though many don't have the gospel available to them, they do have the work of the law written in their hearts. They know, generally speaking, what God requires of them. And we have evidence of that fact by seeing that sometimes they, they do things that are honoring. They do things that are good. They do things that are obedient. They know the standard, but they don't always keep it. Those people will be judged fairly. They will be judged by that standard because they have a standard, though they don't have this one in their hand, and they've not kept even that standard that they do have. And so they will be judged without the law. God isn't holding them to an unfair standard. But there will be a judgment for our works too, Christian. There will be a time when our works, our lives will be assessed to see if our faith was genuine, to see that our conversion was real, to see that we really did trust in Christ and not just ourselves or not just in something else or not just in fire insurance truly trusted in Him, our faith will be examined and the reality of the truth of it will be revealed in our works. The genuineness of our claim to faith will be demonstrated in the judgment according to our works. Our Christian obedience will be the evidence in court as to whether or not Jesus is really our Lord. And so we keep our minds not only on what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved to. We really have been called to obedience to God. We really have been called to walk with Him. In conclusion, I know the weight of this judgment is sobering. It should make us take stock of what our priorities in life really are. What do we really value? What do we really worship? Are we valuing Christ? Are we pursuing Christ with our whole life? But the weight of that judgment should also cause us to cling all the more to our only hope for justification before God, which is Jesus Himself. The fact of the matter is, none of our works is flawless. None will be pleasing to God on its own. Our own imperfect works done in faith in Christ only give evidence that our trust, our faith in Christ Himself, in His work alone is true. His works works alone are fully and finally pleasing to God. Our salvation rests on them. Our salvation rests on Christ's works, on what He has done. He alone satisfies God's perfect requirements. And so as we think this morning and we examine our own lives, the message about our own works, the message about the judgment of our own works is a message that tells us to look back to Christ to 
to trust in Him and to rejoice in Him, being aware of ourselves that if I have to put my faith in what I have done or who I am, if, if I'm going to trust in me, that is a dead-end street. Let's put our faith in Christ, and let's look to Him and His perfect work accomplished on our behalf. The, the goal of this message is, is not that we stress about our works or that we be fixated or, or uh, worked up about our works in that sense, but instead that we look at our lives and see, is there evidence that my faith is true? It's weak evidence, I know. It's spotty. It, it, it's not rock solid. You, you see disobedience in your own life, but do you see evidence of the work of God in your life? And if you don't, this is not the application for you. This is not the application. The application is not, so get to work. The application is, what are you trusting in? If you don't see the obedience of God, if you don't see <clears throat> good works proving salvation working out in your life, the question is, where is your faith? Examine your faith and look to Christ. And so we're right back to where we were at the end of last week, rejoicing in this justification that we have by faith. Because if our hope is to be found in our own works, if my hope is to be found in my performance, I really have no hope. And so if I look and I see I don't, I don't see these kind of works that the Bible talks about in my own life, I need to question and look at where then really is my faith? Where are my eyes fixed? And the call for you this morning is to fix your eyes on Christ and what He has accomplished because His works have been assessed fully and completely and they've been found to be exactly obedient to God. They've been found to be pleasing to God ultimately and completely and they are satisfactory for you who put your faith in Him. And so when we talk about judgment of works, it should cause us to assess and it should cause us to think but it should cause us to lift our eyes to Christ and trust in Him because eyes that are truly fixed on Him, a heart that is, that is in reality turned to Christ, is made new, is made alive. And to that person, to that person God has given good works which God prepared beforehand that He should walk in them. And that's where our hope is, is in Christ Himself and what He's accomplished. So I know... I know this is a difficult concept, and, and it's important for us to think about how to relate together justification by faith and yet judgment according to works. And so thank you for sticking with me as we think about difficult theological things. The end purpose of this, the end goal of this, is that our eyes would not be fixed inward trying to see, well, I guess I better generate some works. But if I examine, my eyes need to go to Christ and what He has accomplished. Trust in Christ, and you will find that His works will satisfy God on your account. Thank you for sticking with me. I know that's heavy. If you have questions, I'm, I'm available to, uh, to discuss them, but it's important that we understand this because we're going to continue on in the book of Romans, and He's going to continue talking about obedience. Where does obedience come in? And He's going to mention later on about we will each give an account for our works. How do we understand that? This is how we understand it. Those things are evidence that we truly have faith in Christ. And if we don't see the evidence, the message is not, so go fabricate some evidence. The message is, look to Christ 
and believe in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak to us from your word. Thank you that you don't pull any punches, that you love us enough to speak the truth, to tell us what to expect from you and what you expect from us. And Father, this this passage has been difficult. I, I know that. This topic is difficult. Father, we want to understand it because we want to understand what you would have of us. We want to understand what exactly it is that you have accomplished for us in Christ. Father, we turn our eyes to you now. And there may be those listening today who have never looked to Christ in that way. Maybe they prayed a prayer at one time and pocketed their ticket, got their fire insurance. I pray that you would turn their heart to you, that they would trust fully in you for what you've accomplished. Father, I pray that you would convert sinners even this morning. Father, I thank you that we are not left to ourselves to generate, to fabricate, to make it look like we have works of obedience before you. But in fact, your Holy Spirit who's been put within us, that change of heart that you have made within us, results in these kind of works. This life that we have shows itself in a life that is turned towards you. I rejoice that that is your work. So Father, even as we think about these deep things this afternoon and this week. May we assess, may we look at ourselves and our own lives, and may the, the end result of that be that we turn our eyes to you, trusting in you and thanking you for what you've accomplished. So, Father, we, we rejoice in the work of Christ on our behalf and your work by your Holy Spirit within us even now. We praise you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. Amen and amen. There's going to be a family up front to pray with you if you want to come and pray. If you have questions about this, ask me. Before you go, I have one final announcement. Today is the day when uh, we wanted to announce to you all that we have uh, indeed decided to hire Stephen Duarte as our director of youth ministries. So praise the Lord for that. And uh, that will begin in July. This is not Stephen, by the way. That's Debbie. But (laughs) But anyway, thank you all. God bless you. You are dismissed.